Hello. Welcome again to At Length. I'm Steve Scher. I hope you've been enjoying the summer. I've been spending a lot of time outside looking at my flowers, watching the hummingbirds, watching the little bees pollinating things, and uh, thinking about my cousins, the viruses. I always feel privileged to talk to the science writer, David Quammen, not the least because he has gotten to take some amazing reporting trips, so I do envy that, including one across Africa that he did for National Geographic. Quammen travels to where scientists are making discoveries, whether in labs or in the field. He brings the works of many scientists together to tell a story of the real world, fact-based, scientifically rigorous explanations of this place we live in. So this new book, it upends our notions of how evolution actually proceeds. The tree of life has always seemed a pretty straightforward metaphor. Single-celled organisms evolved through the process of natural selection, and ta-da, here's humanity. Turns out some other processes are also at work. A new book, The Tangled Tree, A Radical New History of Life, looks at the way New scientific understanding tangles up the trunk of that formerly envisioned stout, straight tree. In this interview, Kwaman says perhaps a better metaphor might be an elaborate topiary. Hey, did, it, did it, I call you or did you call me? I have no idea anymore. <laughs> Hi, it's good to see you. <laughs> and you. <laughs> it's an interesting technology, this Skype, isn't yeah, it? it is. I was wondering if you've been using Skype at all for any of your research and interviews, or if you mostly phone and in person uh mostly in person um i think i i've done a couple interviews by skype for this book uh and maybe a couple for national geographic things since then but um i haven't i haven't used it very much mostly i just like to show up and be able to you know snoop around a person's office it's (laughs) you know i i've been teaching interviewing for i couldn't believe it it's been nine years that i've been teaching this class at the uw wow Uh, and um I should take that class. No, I'm sure you shouldn't. But I I do tell the students, um, because they all want to, you know, can't we just, uh, you know, call them up on the phone? Can't we just email them? And I keep saying, no, you cannot. These assignments, you have to go in and talk to the people because that's the only way you're going to get to actually connect with them. And, and, you know, by the end of the quarter, they get it, which I appreciate. That's, that's absolutely true. I mean, I tell the story. I guess I tell the story in the book that, and, and I was just telling it to somebody else in an interview, this guy, Thierry Heidemann, this French researcher who works on um, the viral content of the human genome. <laughs> um, and uh, I started reading, toward the end of writing this book, I started reading his work and I said, oh my God, this is my linchpin for the end of the book and what this has to do with humanity. Uh, and so I emailed him and said, if I come to Paris, will you talk to me for one hour? And he said, sure. And so I flew there and he turned out to be this, this wonderful, generous guy. He said, oh, you're staying at a hotel not far from my apartment. I'll pick you up. And then he drives me through the city of Paris, right through the middle of it, which is the shortest way to get to his institute on the south side. And he's saying, well, you know, that's Notre Dame, Notre Dame, and <laughs> there's the Sorbonne over there, and there's the Louvre, of course, and here's this, and he's giving me this tour, and we start to talk, and we talk for seven hours. Oh, wow. And, and then I come home, That's and, and that, that trip to Paris was so cost-effective, it was so worth it, because you have to be there, you know, you have to show up. Okay, so, the Tangled Web, the Tree of Life has always been this, 
pretty nice metaphor, or perhaps more than a metaphor. And uh, what you are reporting on is that it's a, it's a little bit of a tangle, not such a yes. straight trunk. So what's the yeah. what's the tangle? What's going on? Well, it was a new idea with Charles Darwin that you know the history of life is shaped like a tree because it, it for him it was an not just a metaphor but an evolutionary metaphor you know single origin of all life and then branching diverging great limbs and smaller limbs and branches and then finally twigs and and leaves representing the diversity the leaves the canopy the diversity of all life present life on earth all arrived at by divergence and then with um with the work of this this obscure but hugely important character who's at the center of my book, Carl Woese, and the people who followed him, there came these discoveries that, in fact, the tree of life is not a tree. The shape of evolutionary history does not conform to that metaphor. There are very, very important exceptions to it um, in the form of branches that converge, uh, channels from one major limb to another, um, a shape like no living tree on the planet. Uh, and those discoveries were uh, in the form of recognition of particularly this phenomenon they call horizontal gene transfer, genes moving sideways from species to species, from one kingdom of life to another. Those are the horizontal channels between the limbs. So now we have a history of life that doesn't look like a tree. It looks like it, uh, it looks like some sort of a bizarre topiary structure where somebody is grafting limbs into other limbs as well as letting some limbs uh, spread and diverge. And that's what that's what my title suggests. You know, that's a, that is a science fiction idea that that genes from one branch of life infect and and uh, affect another. That's like science fiction. But so it, it, so it is like science fiction or it's like. What people worry about uh, is happening in the in the laboratories, you know, genetic engineering, genetically modified organisms. Hey, we're going to take a gene out of a jellyfish and we're going to put it in a tomato and it's going to make the tomato more resistant to frost for some reason. Um, and people, the people who oppose that say, oh, that's unnatural. That's monstrous. Um, well, it might have good applications and it might have some scary applications but the fact is it's not unnatural because nature itself has been doing it for three billion years moving genes sideways from one species into another yeah one of the things you talk about is the what eight percent of the human genome is divine is derived from viral dna so yeah we're viruses we're we're eight percent viruses yeah yeah uh it's that weird it's that counterintuitive um, we are composites. We are chimeras. We are mosaics of life forms. And some of what is us does not come down to us by linear descent through the animal um, limb of the tree. Some of it comes sideways from viruses. Some of it has come sideways from bacteria. Um, so, um, so yes, every human is an individual, but it an individual composed of other individuals and pieces of other individuals. Now you mentioned you mentioned that that we look at it in the laboratory and and some people freak out. But is this is that because people look at what you're describing as something that happened four billion years ago and it's not a present 
effect, or is this the fact that it happened four billion years ago means that it's an ongoing effect on it life? It is on. Yes, yes. It was first discovered by Carl Woese in the deep. Well, some of these discoveries were were made by him, and then by people who adopted his his peculiar early gene sequencing methods with all the toxic chemicals and the radioactive phosphorus and the explosive liquids and all that. He was lucky that he didn't blow the town of Urbana, Illinois sky high uh, with what he was doing in the in the 1970s. But he started looking at fragments of genomes and comparing them and um, and found and wanted to learn the deep history of evolution, a, a profoundly curious probing man. And so so, yes, he found um, evidence of these strange things back three billion years ago. But other researchers have looked at living organisms, comparing them and and established that this has continued to go on. And it's it's it may not happen frequently, but over the long stretches of time, it has happened abundantly and with great consequences. And it's and it's still happening. Because I tell the story of antibiotic resistant bacteria. It's happening in the 21st century in that form. Well, Genes moving sideways between different strains of bacteria, spreading the problem of antibiotic-resistant bacteria around the, around the world much faster than it would otherwise spread. You know, I was wondering about that. The last book you did was, um, was Spillover, right? Yeah. So uh, what in Spillover, If was there anything in Spillover that prompted you to wonder about the spread of of, of just diseases and viruses that brought you to this book? Well, um, frankly, no, this one, this was, it was an independent discovery, but in spillover, I paid a lot of attention to emerging viruses like Ebola and to some extent to <clears throat> bacterial diseases. But in all the work, I spent five years on spillover, um, studying the ecology and evolution of infectious diseases that come out of animals. And I did not come across these facts about horizontal gene transfer. That book was published in 2012, and it wasn't until maybe spring of 2013 that reading something, I came across this phenomenon, horizontal gene transfer. And I said, horizontal what? What? No, that's that that's not, that can't happen. That's impossible for the following five reasons that I know from my studies in biology. But I read farther and it turned out, whoa, it is possible. And uh, I came across the work of a fellow named Ford Doolittle, who has written a lot on this, and he's one of my main characters, fascinating guy at Halifax, Nova Scotia. And then I came across this character, Carl Woese, who began this whole revolution in understanding, and he had just died. I, he died in December of 2012, so 2013 spring, I pick up the trail. He's already gone, but I discover that he's the spider in the middle of this whole magnificent web. Um, and so I start reading backwards into his life and work. Um, so how does it work? Like molecular phylogenetics, right? This is yeah. what we're talking about. So what is that? And how does this, how does the actual, what's the actual process by which uh, genes are transferred horizontally? Uh, well, molecular phylogenetics, that's what this is. And that means essentially um, uh, discerning the history of life and the patterns of relatedness by looking at long molecules and comparing long molecules, molecular phylogenetics. So which long molecules? Well, there are certain long molecules that are complicated and that are composed of, of units, like an alphabet of units, 
arranged in different ways. You know, DNA. There are these four building blocks of DNA that are abbreviated with the letters A, T, C, and G. So a DNA molecule is A, T, C, and G, you know, repeated endlessly in different arrangements. That's, that's, how, that's how the genetic code works. RNA is another long molecule. Its letters are A, T, excuse me, A, A, G, A, C, T, G. Am I missing one? U, there's U instead of the T. So it's oh. A, C, G, and U. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so that's how this is done. Uh, you sequence genomes, and then you compare genomes, and you see that in this one, you've got the A, T, T, C, 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 U, U, U. Um, and, and that's a gene that shouldn't be in a human. That's a bacterial gene. We see it in all these other bacterial genomes. So how does it get, you ask, how does, how does horizontal gene transfer happen? Um, it, uh, it, the, the short answer is that it happens by infection. That's the main uh, mechanism. And one other label for this that was dreamed up by a, a biologist in the 1950s was infective heredity. Hmm. Infective heredity. So either a bacterium uh, infects a cell gets inside a cell, not just inside somebody's stomach, but inside a cell. And then somehow the, the DNA from that, part of the DNA from that bacterium gets into the, uh, into the nucleus of the cell and becomes part of that cell's DNA. Or a virus gets into a cell. And if it's a retrovirus, it can, backwards, retro, it can insert its own DNA into the DNA of that cell. That's how we acquired that 8% of our genome that's viral. Or a virus can also maybe infect um, one creature and pick up a segment of that creature's DNA and then descendants of that incorporated in its own genome and then descendants of that virus infect another creature and, and drop that. It's sort of a drag and drop thing that viruses can do. And there's a fancy name for each of these different methods, conjugation, transformation, transduction. But think of it as infection and drag and drop. You know, um, uh, does, this, uh, does this expand or does this upend the, the, the way we think about the world that we got from Darwin? Because I keep thinking about it, and you talk about it a little bit, I keep thinking about Lamarck. And and those yeah, those yeah. guys who said, oh, you know, you can inherit giraffes can get longer necks because they they reach they stretch to eat the the higher leaves, and that's how we got long necks. But that's not the process. But something something is very different going on. It seems. Well, you're right, Steve. Yeah, this is uh, this is somewhat Lamarckian. Lamarck is famously associated with the idea of the inheritance of acquired characteristics, um, and people during the 20th century have proven over and over again that it's not possible, the inheritance of acquired characteristics. Well, turns out it is possible. Uh, and this is the way it happens. Um, these are characteristics that are acquired by horizontal gene transfer, and then they are passed down to descendants. They are inherited. Uh, by the way, parenthetically, Darwin himself in The Origin of Species um, left space for the idea of the inheritance of acquired characteristics. Uh, he said, well, he thought that that was another possible mechanism. Uh, he called it use and disuse. You talked about the giraffe. Use, use your neck to stretch, for, um, to stretch for high leaves and 
um, the individual giraffe's neck will, will get longer, and then the baby giraffes will be born with longer necks. That's the inheritance of acquired characteristics. Another version of that is horizontal gene transfer. You know, just also as a as an aside, I, I liked that description of Darwin with his A and B notebooks that you write about, where he's keeping yeah. notes of different things. What a what a mind! Yeah, he was great. He was he was a wonderful man. So so honest, so curious, um, and such a plotter. Was Darwin a genius? I would say no. You know, genius is is a word for you know, grandmasters chess at the age of 12 and people who can solve, you know, complicated equations without having been trained. Darwin, Darwin was a, he was a grunt. Um, everything that he discovered, he discovered through hard work, focus. And if he was brilliant, at, I mean, he certainly was brilliant, but he wasn't a genius because he didn't get anything for free. Nothing came to him easily. Uh, and he had those secret notebooks in which he started brainstorming right after he got back from the voyage of the Beagle. He had these secret notebooks that he carried around, his transmutation notebooks, they're called, where he started brainstorming um, ideas about a possible theory of evolution. And early on, he drew this little stick figure of a tree and wrote above it, I think. And that was the that was almost the first evolutionary tree. Um, and, I mean, it's pretty remarkable that the the minds that he well he was keeping him secret in part because he was afraid that people might look at him and 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 ridicule him because these were unformed yeah. and and wacky ideas in the in, yeah. in the sense of that age. I mean, you've you have met a lot of scientists and you've worked you've tried to get their stories out and 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 two things one they seem equally um, uh, enamored of of thinking. <laughs> Like woes yeah. and and do little, Whoa. they they just think re, they just want to think, and they don't want to be um hammered uh, hampered by, you know, the accepted notions of of what we have around us. Is that right. is that right? And does that make yeah. you feel like yeah. hopeful? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, and woes, you know, woes was fairly isolated. He was at the University of Illinois in Urbana, Illinois. Um, he w he didn't like to travel. He was a he was a lousy lecturer. Um, he was kind of a grumpy guy, except to his good friends, and, and he would, could be very generous. He could be great company. He, he could be a good guy to drink beer with. Um, but uh, he had no, you know, he had no appetite for bullshit. He had no appetite for university chores. Um, uh, he was kind of a crank. He just wanted to think and research, and about the deepest questions. What? Um, how did the genetic code evolve? How did life begin? How did com complex life start? What, how, how are creatures related to one another at the deepest point in the tree of life where the very first big limbs branch off of the trunk? That was what he was interested in. And he said to Francis Crick in a letter, you know, I want to take the story back a billion years or so before what we know now. Oh, is that, is that all, Carl? Just a billion years earlier. And he invented this method for doing that. Um, he wrote a letter in 1969 saying, you know, dear to Crick, saying, dear Francis, I'm about to embark on uh, a really difficult and maybe irreversible decision, and I could use some advice from you. I'm going to go deep. I'm going to try and figure out the deepest structure of the tree of life. And he did it. Gives you a little hope for uh, science and the scientific process in the modern age, doesn't it? 
It just does. these guys are still are still cranking it out, just like the yeah. the, the French scientists you you went and talked to at the at like sort Siri of... Hyde. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, when you uh, just real archaea, is that how we say yeah. what archaea? Yeah. What yeah. so a different branch of life than was known of before? What what's the significance yes. of that? This is what put woes first on the map. November 3rd, 1977, he's on the front page of the New York Times, above the fold. Um, picture of him with his feet up on his desk, wearing Adidas and a sports shirt, and this, you know, 49-year-old white-haired guy who's just made this discovery. What has he discovered? He's discovered that there is a third major kingdom of life, in addition to the two kingdoms of life that we thought were it. Scientists believe that essentially there were two kingdoms. One of them was called the prokaryotes. Essentially, that was bacteria. It was little, little living cells um, with no uh, fancy internal anatomy, no cell nucleus, um, simple cells. And we thought they were all bacteria. And then there was everything else, um, cells with nuclei, animals, plants, fungi, um, us. So those were the two kingdoms. And Woes comes along, and after he had done some of his early sequencing work, he found out that, wait, there's this whole group that are simple cells, but they're not bacteria. And matter of fact, if you look at their genomes, they're more similar to a human being than they are to a bacterium, despite the fact that through a microscope, they look like a bacterium. And those are the archaea, a third kingdom of life. And we're archaea amongst everything else, huh? Humans, I mean. Well, we and now that was a later discovery, and I talk about that too. Yeah, the other big surprise is that finding out that this, the the host cell that in in certain through certain um, complicated events became complex cells with a cell nucleus that that container cell before it had a cell nucleus before he, it had these other fancy bits of anatomy had to start somewhere. It did not start with a bacterium. It started with an archaean. So. Our deepest ancestry goes back to a form of life that was not even known to exist before 1977. You know, um, you write about this in the book. You end it this way. Um, this concept sort of challenges all sorts of ways we think about ourselves, the way we order the world. It also sort of raises the questions of what's a human What's a yep. what's not a human? What's an individual? What's an, indi what's an individual? Yeah. What's a species? I mean, it just. Uh, I was just. I just finished a book by uh, Dan Flores called Coyote America, mm -hmm. and 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 in it he writes about this. There's a. You know, we should think of coyotes in this whole other way because not only are they survivors, but they are. Um, not only are they adapters, I should say, but they are. Um, they're fluid. They're fluid across between wolves and, and coyotes and, and fluid also in terms of uh, understanding and adaptability in their relationship to humans. And when I was reading this, I was sort of thinking the same thing. This, you know, the, the natives had this idea of coyote as a being that wandered the earth and, and, and interacted. And it's sort of, I know I'm going way off, but in a sense, there's this, there's this notion in all this that we are wolves and bacteria and in a, in a very real sense, it's, it's, prominent not not way deep yeah. in our past yes and and we knew that there was a pot we knew that um the the boundaries of what we call a species can be a little bit blurry you know if you two, take two very similar species like wolves and coyotes 
uh, and you put them together under certain circumstances, you'll get some interbreeding. Uh, coyotes and dogs, you'll get some interbreeding. So a, a blurry gray area between the two species. But we thought that had to happen with two very closely related species. Now we come to find out that by way of horizontal gene transfer, you can have a blurry line um, that is a <laughs> between creatures that you never would have imagined could have any sort of overlap. I mentioned, you know, between um, uh, you know, between back, uh, you can find bacterial genes in a plant. How does that happen? It's, well, it happens because the concept of species is not an absolute. It's not a categorical. I say this near the end of the book. And the concept of an individual is not an absolute. It's not a categorical because we human individuals are composites of other DNA and other individuals. So what does that mean for you as you, uh, what does that mean for you today? I mean, all right, I mean, I am, I'm an individual, I'm standing here, but I'm a composite too. But how does that, how do I relate that back to our interaction or the interaction I'm having with the world, plants and the animals well, in the world? I've, I've said in other books that, um, you know, one of uh, one of Charles Darwin's um, great truths, maybe the deepest and darkest of his truths that, you know, he sprang on the world in 1859, was that we humans are animals. We're not separate from nature. We're not above nature. We're part of nature. Um, but never have I come across more dramatic, uh, astonishing evidence of that than in researching this book and learning about uh, horizontal gene transfer. So what, is it, what does it mean for me, my daily, well, my daily life is the same, but the way I think about myself um, in the universe, the way I think about humans on Earth is all the more bound uh, um, with, with humility and recognition of the fact that we are entangled with all these other life forms. We're, we're not we're not gods. We're not at the pinnacle of creation. We're, we're, you know, um, we're part of the spaghetti sauce. It's actually exciting to be part of the spaghetti sauce, isn't it? It's more ways to learn and adapt. And I guess it also makes the whole idea of CRISPR and genetic engineer, genetic manipulation a little less um, frightening if it can be done with some humility and understanding. I if guess. it can be done with some humility and it makes it a little less frightening when you realize that all these forms of genetic modification of organisms and CRISPR, et cetera. Some people who, who are scared of them and who dislike them say, well, it's not natural. It's very unnatural. I can't remember if I've already said this. Maybe I did. But now we find out that it's very natural. It's been going on for, you know, 3 billion, maybe 3.5 billion years. Just not in the laboratory. Well, I guess it's the world is the laboratory, right? The world is the laboratory. Yeah. Hey, I, w I was one last thing and then I'll, I, I, it's a, sure. maybe a little bit off point, but I was wondering in, in terms of zoonotic diseases and horizontal gene transfer. And I mean, part of what you're, where we came to understand was that infection, the way we understand infection that you describe it in the book, like uh, resistance, something's, something has, is a bacteria, it infects a body, uh, organisms build up, some die, and then resistance occurs over time. H how does this change the way we view in the evolution of infection and then resistance because that plays out in some ways to drug resistant yeah. uh, bacteria right? and viruses bacteria. Yeah, that's an important part of this uh, a japanese researcher named uh, tsutomu watanabe discovered in 1963 that 
the buildup of resistance to antibiotics among dangerous bacteria is passed from one kind of bacterium to another, one species, even one family of bacterium, of bacteria to another, instantly, can be passed instantly by horizontal gene transfer. So that's the reason that this problem has spread around the world so quickly, and people are not saying that. I mean, the idea is that, you know, oh, resistance to antibiotics or resistance to pesticides among insects, that develops by natural selection acting on incremental mutations in the genome. Well, that's where it originally comes from in bacteria, incremental mutations. But once you have uh, have a gene that will protect a particular kind of bacteria from a particular antibiotic, that gene can be passed instantly to another kind of bacteria um, by horizontal gene transfer. That's the part we didn't know, and that's the reason the problem is spreading around the world so quickly. It is happening. We are seeing this with things with different diseases and, and the drug resistance of the, to those diseases. Yeah, yeah. Yes, absolutely. What is uh, that? It's tra- um, it's it's it, you know it's traceable in the genomes of these things. So how do how do we respond? How does science how does science respond to that? Well, how do we uh, the well the, the the problem of resistant bacteria uh, is a you know is a a genie that's hard to put back in the bottle. We keep trying to invent new antibiotics, but um, one kind of bacterium. Uh, develops a, a resistance to that antibiotic, and then and then it can be passed to all the other dangerous bacteria. We need uh, we need to um, be more uh, more frugal, more conscientious about the way we use antibiotics. Um, you know, we use them a lot in agriculture as well as for human health. We use them profligately. We use them by the millions and millions of tons, um, and that's what encourages this resistance to develop. It's a, it's a really serious problem. 11,000 people a year in the U.S. roughly die of these, of, of bacteria that 50 years ago we could, we could kill off with antibiotics. So maybe this is science fiction speculation again, but then does the understanding of horizontal gene transfer also make it possible to come up with um, substances that can also move through uh, the world of bacteria to remove resistance or or take away the ability to transfer resistance my answer would be and i haven't researched that particular question but my my answer would be probably not we um this is this is a problem that spreads quickly by this particular phenomenon horizontal gene transfer it's important for us to understand that but that doesn't mean that horizontal gene transfer also offers us a quick fix Hmm. Hmm. all right that's a nice note to think uh, to end on (laughs) (laughs) I guess Steve, Steve, I always love talking with you. I appreciate it. I love I love reading your stuff. It was funny that we that you were coming to town because just a couple of months ago I pulled Song of the Dodo off my shelf right there and I was rereading some parts of it just for bless you. Just for thoughts. And you know, do you know Nancy Pearl? Do you know who she is? Oh, yeah. Well, I've never I don't think I've ever met her face to face, but yeah, America's librarian, you bet. Yeah. She's been I've had some dealings with her. She's been very nice to me. And she loves your uh, book, your novel, The Soul yeah. of Victor Tronco. She just Soul loves it. Tronco. Yeah, she brought that back into print. God bless her. Yeah, so I, I just got it. I haven't read it, and so I thought, you know, I'd better read this book. So I just ordered it. But yeah, because she brought it back into print, she just really appreciates it a lot, and I think that's I, exciting. I, I hope you enjoy it. It's pretty different from The Tangled Tree. 
Except it's also very tangled. <laughs> well, that's good. All right. I hope I hope I see in in uh, when you're in town. I'm going to Chicago, but I might be back that night. So okay. I hope to see you. But, I hope so too. All right. Stay in touch, friend. It's great to see you. Good to talk to you, sir. Take care. Bye. Okay. Bye bye. David Quammen talking about his latest book, The Tangled Tree: A Radical New History of Life. The overlap Quammen discusses the notion that species is not categorical. That affects us on many levels. Are we bugs too? Are we bees? We are. Maybe the notion might give us pause next time we smash, squash, slaughter another creature, or at least pay some homage before we consume one. Maybe you heard the conversation about the small pollinators that keep the world full of seeds and blooms that I had a few months back with some local gardeners. The little sweat bees, many of them are bright metallic green. They do the yeoman's work pollinating native plants. You can find out all sorts of things about the sweat bee on the web. A few websites, a few too many websites, in my humble opinion, posted by insecticide companies calling for their destruction. That's a big mistake, as we learned, because they do make sure that we get food to the table. So think twice about that and think twice about all those sprays. They not only hurt the little bees, but honeybees as well. And we do need them, all of them, as we heard, incremental mutations may be at work, but so is the process of horizontal gene transfer. As Quammen points out, who knows where the resistant genes will end up. Those little bees and their purpose, that's the topic I'll take up next episode of At Length in a conversation with the conservation biologist Thor Hansen the author of Buzz, The Nature and Necessity of Bees. Some folks think I'm kind of obsessing about these little creatures, but, you know, better to obsess about that than some of the things you can read about in the news daily, yes? All right, well, thank you for listening to At Length. I would love to hear from you. Email me, s-s-c-h-e-r at gmail.com. Give me some thoughts, share some advice. Maybe just send a picture of the little bees in your yard. S-S-C-H-E-R at gmail.com. Talk to you next time at length.